Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Elizabeth Fry, and you're listening to the C2 podcast. I'm very excited to have another special guest with me here today, the amazing Lila Schwartz. Thank you, Lila, for being here today to talk with us. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be a part of this and happy to have a discussion about some of the work I'm doing. Yeah. And the reason why I think it's so important to have this discussion is twofold. Number one, you're our new um, clinician at C2. Um, And number two, you're doing some really interesting research that I think would be of benefit to our community to know about. Um, And yeah, I think it it also informs the clinical work that we do as clinicians as well. Um, So Lila joined us at C2. When was it, Lila? Was it November? November now. Gosh, time is I think I randomly reached out to you guys and was like, hey, you're all American or English-speaking therapist, psychologist. Can I work with you? Yes, I was, it was really, really wonderful to have you look us up. And, and can you say a little bit about like your circumstances of coming to Switzerland and, and why you were looking for a place to, to work in Switzerland? Yeah, since around 2016, um, I was working in Lesbos um, and camps and like community shelters and housing for unaccompanied minors who had recently migrated um, to Europe. And many of the children um, and people I worked with ended up in Switzerland. And there's a law firm called Aussilex um, in Switzerland run by Swiss lawyers. And most of the children that I worked with um, now reside in Switzerland. So I was in Afghanistan and we also were continuously working on humanitarian visas um, for specialized cases to come to Switzerland. And I really wanted to be amongst that community and be able to still be connected and supported. And so I decided my home base will now be Switzerland. How lucky are we? Um, and we can put a link below in the episode notes to um, Azalex, because I think that might be a, of interest to people who are listening. They do really fantastic work as well, right? They provide um, advocacy and yeah. And- They started quite small. Um, Leah is a judge and a lawyer, a Swiss judge and lawyer. Um, And now they are a larger organization providing free uh, legal services to all asylum seekers and refugees um, in Switzerland. And they're open 24 seven and they have many languages and they're um, trying to support and advocate for um, people here who don't know how the system works or um, yeah have challenges with immigrating to Switzerland. And so they saw a need and a gap and now they're quite established and they work closely with the government authorities to provide additional support. Um, But they're doing fantastic work and changing lives of people um, in Switzerland. So they, when I was in Afghanistan, we would often ask them um, for political asylum cases to be reviewed and they would help us um, process those kind of cases and requests from the government. And I know that this is an issue that's very near and dear to your heart. Um, I'm very mindful that actually, as we're speaking right now, you're in Poland working with families who are escaping the war in Ukraine. Yeah, I studied trauma and suicide prevention and had a lot of placements during school. Um, I am a lifelong student. So yeah, I just continuously go to school, but I um, I went to Haiti in 2009 um, and then South Africa, Peru, Thailand, India, 
And then I really wanted to go to Syria um, and work there to develop programming to respond to trauma. And uh, my family was not so supportive of that. So we said, what was the first point in Europe that migrants um, are accessible and where, what good work could I do there? So I looked into it and then I went to Lesbos and um, I worked with unaccompanied minors, surprisingly actually from Afghanistan because they had different privileges and access um, than Syrian refugees and migrants at the moment, at the time. So I didn't know much about Afghanistan. Um, and then I got heavily involved. And then I went back five, six times in that year. And I wanted to go to Afghanistan to meet the kids' family. And I said, I would go to Afghanistan for three months. And it was four years. And then I was in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Turkey. Um, now we're working in Libya, but mostly, yeah, I try to work with vulnerable populations that people don't have the ability to reach or contextualize evidence-based practices with. So that's kind of how it got started. And unintentionally, I guess I've specialized in some way or form in trauma. And how did that lead into you um, to choosing your PhD program and your PhD project? Yeah, I actually looked a lot into young adolescents externalized behavior and rehabilitation through psychological aid instead of uh, punitive forms of torture, which is what I was witnessing where I was. Um, okay, wait, and no, break that down for us. What does that mean for the non-psychologist? <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> so we saw basically or what we, I worked in Afghanistan in an emergency hospital um, and we started, I got a call from one of the government officials saying that there were uh, many incidents of young boys being violent and aggressive and they needed help and how could we help them most? And usually anger is like a surface level emotion for sadness. So when someone's deeply sad, but they don't know how to communicate it, it comes out in violent or angry ways. Um, and so what we tried to show is that instead of other programs or alternatives, actually, since they've been exposed to so many horrific things, what they need is psychological support as some form of mental health services or ways to cope and grieve what they've gone through so they don't have this like built up resentment and so that they have the skills to regulate their emotions or manage impulsive decisions they are making which had really long-term implications for their lives um and so yeah there's a lot of trauma in Afghanistan from what I witnessed and not enough access to help um and help that is make sense to them and their traditions and culture and language. So then we just started to kind of expand outside of Afghanistan, um, working with women who've gone through horrific things that shouldn't exist. Um, people during migration witness a lot of trauma and also like the types of psychological distress they have when they arrive in Switzerland or when they arrive anywhere because it's still really quite complicated. And just because some of your basic needs are met doesn't mean that you haven't endured what you just went through. Mm -hmm. So that's also what I will study in Switzerland. Um, we are trying to ensure there's evidence-based contextualized adapted approaches for Afghans 
um, ages 14 to 24 um, to really identify like feelings of sense of loss or sense of purpose or inclusion or um, many other things that we just ran a, a test for um, content testing to see we listed like basically 20 stories and characters and ask which ones were most relatable um, based on their experiences and where they're from. And so now we're incorporating all of that into the tools that we make for them. So the tools that you're, you're testing right now are going to be um, part of helping uh, people who are settling here in Switzerland find their way and build community and do all of the things that we as the, um, the people in the audience uh, have also experienced in our own ways in settling here. Yeah, and in the lab I'm working, my professor and supervisor, she created um, this program called Start Now, and we are making Start Now adapted. So it incorporates like motivational interviewing, CBT, DBT, um, and it's really about learning skills and mindfulness, um, which people can apply to their lives. And so we, we're going to test it in Switzerland and then in Turkey. And then we hope that community members um, can help people in Afghanistan get access to indirect ways, integrated ways of mental health. That's excellent. So it's starting here in Switzerland, but you're hoping that it will have ripple effects really across the world. Yeah, because Afghans are one of the highest populations that migrate and due to the incidents that have recently occurred, um, it might drastically increase. And in Switzerland, and specifically, there's a high number um, proportionate to the other migrant populations. And so not everyone can become PhD psychologists who speaks Farsi. So what can we do to empower them to become more resilient so they can like also have the best chances of making their lives? It's very cool because I hear this this thread throughout all of the different experiences that you've had of just helping people feel less isolated, helping people recognize their worth and their value as a human, despite all of these dehumanizing experiences that they might have gone through. And I, I hear that throughout all of the different work that you've done. It sounds like that's a really important value to you. Yeah. My professor once told me in school, if you work with hardest populations, not that they're hard, but the circumstances or environments that are hard that you can work with anyone. Mm. And I think it can be overwhelming and scary, unknown um, to try to find solutions for such big problems, but um, it is possible. And a lot of the work we do is amongst the populations we work with. So we have um, asylum seekers and now Afghan residents of Switzerland helping um, contributing their feedback and language um, to ensure that it meets expectations of what they need. And also is like the pictures look like them and that the stories are things that all of these people have heard themselves or endured themselves. Um, but it's, it's really important to me that as a clinician, I of course work at C2, but also that a lot of what my work is driven by is that people who don't have access or can't get help. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. You know, we're quite fortunate, you know, the people, myself included, and the other people listening to this podcast, um, we are uh, migrants ourselves, but of course we speak English, so that offers us up to many other opportunities and privileges that a lot of people who are migrating here might not 
have available to them. So I know a lot of us would like to help in some way, would like to be able to do something. Is there anything that you need as part of your research um, that we can do to support you in that endeavor? Yeah, there's many things that can be done. And I really want to say that most of the families and people I've worked with um, don't want to be dependent on social systems and they want to be independent and they want to thrive. Um, and I think with the support and the community around them, they have that chance. And one of the biggest things is, um, especially with unaccompanied minors, is having mentors. So like, of course, not everyone has the time and energy to do so much, but like once a month or once every three months, like taking them and guiding them and talking to them about life challenges, because um, usually you depend on your family to kind of give you inputs or reflect with you. And if they don't have that mm-hmm. uh, with people who are from the country they're trying to integrate into, it can be so tough. So I think um, there's a wide scale of things you could do, but we're also trying to run a study at the moment um, to kind of identify the biggest gaps that people have when they migrate to Switzerland and the EU. And we are passing this survey around because we first need to understand what the needs are specifically based on country of origin. And then afterwards we can try to work uh, with many different entities and layers of government to kind of get those needs met. And is that survey something that our community, our audience could, could participate in? Yeah, it's mostly for people who have become resident like B or C permits mm-hmm. uh, in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's really interesting to analyze and see like what access and privileges have based on their permit, based on where they're from, um, and and how we can kind of make those all accessible. Okay. I mean, so- I can't change any policies or, or no. things like that, but it's good to know uh, where people stand. Just getting more information is a, is a really good place um, to start from. So for those of you listening, um, the recommendations would be, of course, mentorship, if possible, through some kind of community outreach or just, um, you know, a local family um, reaching out if that's possible or accessible to you. And then the second thing you could do would be to participate in the survey. And we'll put a link um, in the episode notes below, but it seems like it's a survey more for people who are um, pretty settled here. So if you have a, a B or a C permit, that would be the most useful population for the research that you're doing. Is that right? Yeah. And um, if anyone is interested, like we do have a lot of projects around the world at the moment um, or in Switzerland, and we're always looking for people who want to be involved. Um, and you don't need to be an expert. There's so many ways to be a part and there's so many component components to all the projects. So just reach out. I know so many people that I'm talking to are very much affected by the um, unrest in the world right now. And I, I certainly find that it can feel very paralyzing and it's hard to know what to do about it. So there are some concrete ways that I think we can do something to get involved and to to help people who are in these really precarious situations. Are there other things that you can think of that um, might be useful? Yeah, I mean, I'm currently in Poland and um, I think people think that you just have to be here in order to be a part, Um, but there's different ways to respond and there's many uh, Ukrainians now in Switzerland um, and sometimes they just need someone to listen. Um, And so, I mean, yeah, in my perspective, there's so much that can be done um, if the will is there. Um, 
And so I guess it depends on I mean, we start our mental health. And I think that this is one of the most neglected things when aid and development is created because it's usually about like hierarchy of needs. Like, do they have shelter? Do they have safety? Right. Um, do they have food and water? And those are of course vital to exist. Um, but we can't forget that at some point they do need, I mean, not everyone is traumatized. I don't think this, but at, like just to have peer led support groups or survival discussions or dialogues, um, making sure that kids who don't have the words to communicate somehow heal from what's happened. Um, but back to your question about ways to help. I mean, also even supporting the people, um, here on the ground. So like, I can always call to you and say, oh, today I saw some tough things. Um, and so, yeah, we're really trying also here to ensure all implementation is done by communities around the borders and in the situation so that it's sustainable and they don't become so dependent on foreign aid and then that foreign aid and because of funding or whatever it may be. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's what how you want to help depends on how much time and capacity mm -hmm. you have. Mm -hmm. But there's always definitely ways, even if it's donating your clothes, um, if it's donating a meal, like mm -hmm. small things leave people with a lot of emotions of feeling cared for. And that's really Absolutely. helpful. Most communities, I think, have some kind of community center set up to help um, provide a safe space for people coming from abroad. For example, here in Feel, we have the House for Bien, which is a multicultural community center set up with free babysitting run by volunteers, um, lots of different workshops and opportunities for people to just come together and meet together and get support in whatever way they're open to. Um, so have a look in your local community and see if there is something like that. If there's not, maybe you can talk to other people in the community and see if they're open to starting something like that. I know in Lausanne, for example, there's a, um, uh, a church there that's gonna be opening up um, a day center for, um, Ukrainian families that are arriving. So there are lots of things in progress. And I think if I can say there's just enough momentum right now, people are really interested in helping. So if we pull all of that together, I, I can imagine that there, there's, there are some ways that people can, can make connections and, and talk about what they, what they want to do. Yeah. And I think also one really important thing is that no one lives the same experience, but everyone can relate to similar feelings. So feeling lonely or feeling afraid. Of course, there's different severities of that. But um, if you don't know what to say or how to say, um, you there's no right or wrong answer. It's more just hearing people out and feeling understood. That's a beautiful thing. To, that's a really good reminder because I, I do have often a lot of clients um, who are saying things like, well, it's not like I've I've been in war or it's not like I've, you know, had this happen to me as if they're minimizing their own experience or their own capacity to connect to somebody who has gone through an experience like that. And I would also encourage people to think about the humanness of, of emotion. And it doesn't really matter um, what kind of loss or difficulty we're experiencing. We're all feeling it in the same way. There's no comparing that needs to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, can, can you say a little bit just about your clinical work? Um, I know that you have a lot of experience working with trauma. Are there other things that are interesting to you that you're building in your practice here at, at C2? Yeah. Um, C2, Wednesdays are my best days. Mm -hmm. so one of my best days. Um, I think that trauma is 
yeah, a fundamental thing that many people experience in different forms and ways. And at C2, um, I work with couples or families or individual cases um, that are not the same as what I see, I guess, in the field. But I truly love the sense of community we have at C2 and the variety of populations I see. Um, it really, it's, yeah, my clients there have the ability and tools around them to progress. And of course, it's not so linear, like doesn't just get better overnight, but um, I really just enjoy genuinely, authentically hearing their stories and seeing how we can support and um, problem solving, I guess, together. And yeah, I'm really thankful for that experience. And I um, don't sit still so often. So it's kind of nice on, on Wednesdays to kind of know that I'm going to be there and get to, to be in one place and... <laughs> That, yes, so. before you fly back to Poland, as you are doing at the moment. Yes, we're very grateful to yeah. have you here for the, the day that we get we get you. Um, yeah, so if anybody has questions for you, can they contact you via email or is there yeah. another way that you prefer to be in touch? Email is the best mm -hmm. way. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, we're involved. I'm involved in a lot of things. Um, but my main focus is my work in Switzerland and my team. I have to give them a lot of recognition because um, they really do so much. Um, and I, I wouldn't be able to be where I am or we wouldn't be able to lead uh, an organization that specializes in mental health if it wasn't for them. So, yeah, we're really open minded. Uh, we do a lot of collaborations with much bigger organizations because we are so small. Um, and I kind of like this because we do technical work and we don't have to worry about other aspects of the projects that we work on over the like around the world. Um, and but this is Poma, really you mean, right? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yes. So, yeah. Tell us a little bit about Poma while you're at Poma. Yeah. So in Kabul, um, unintentionally, also, we, we open a mental health consulting firm and we work on like projects, um, a lot of MHPSS mental, mental health and psychosocial support projects. Um, research or developing programming that's mainstreamed into other aspects like protection or livelihoods. Um, and now we're working in, maybe we've worked in 20 plus countries now. And we, yeah, we do a lot of trainings, a lot of response to incidents. And that's something that just developed um, because we kept getting projects and asked to do more and more work. And so now we have a, a team of consultants who we met along the way who help us um, implement projects. That's wonderful. You are truly a woman of many hats. Um, Poma, you get doing your PhD at the University of Basel in the University Psychiatric Clinic there, working at C2, running field operations in, in Poland. It's, it's really amazing what you do. And um, really grateful that we have an opportunity to, to get to know you better and to hopefully help in spreading um, the good, good work that you're doing around the world. Of course. If anybody listening is interested in learning more about POMA or about Lila's research, we'll put all those links in the episode notes below. And of course, Lila's email address as well. Um, and you can check out um, the C2 Facebook page for more information about what Lila's up to. So we thank you so much, Laila, for this opportunity to have a conversation with you. We know that your time is precious. 
Um, Always. No problem. Yes. So thank you very much. And we wish you a really good rest of the day. You too. Bye. Bye.